All right, I know that we've been working on the book of Romans for ever, 20, since 2019. But I, I, I didn't, we'll probably come back to it tonight, but we're in this section that I'm still having lots of issues with. So we'll, we'll work, we'll probably come back to it tonight and hopefully, you know, not, not fall behind any. Uh, but if, you know, I've always said if, it, if I come to a passage and I'm not sure it's best to wait than pressing forward and, you know, making mistakes. I mean, we're dealing with God's word, so it's not like something we just mess around with, okay? Now, I also know that it's Mother's Day and that in most churches, you're going to get the typical Mother's Day sermon. You know, I don't, we don't follow that pattern in any way, shape, or form. Um, if we were going to follow a calendar, we wouldn't follow the modern day ca- calendar. We would follow the ancient church calendar and we'd be, you know, celebrating things like Trinity Sunday or uh, Christ the Lord Sunday, Epiphany, Advent. We would be following the seasons of the, of the church calendar. Sometimes we have done that in the past, but we typically don't do that. I would just say this, since it is Mother's Day, just remember whether it's Mother's Day, Father's Day, there's many days like that, that the church has a tendency to forget that there's plenty of people who Mother's Day, Father's Day, or many of these other days, it's not a good day. For many, it's a really, 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 really bad day. All right? It's a painful day. I remember, obviously, I lost my mother when I was a teenager um, and not a very, very, very good situation. I'm not going to go tell that horrible story. And I can remember, you know, year after year, coming to church on quote-unquote Mother's Day, and of course it always has to be the typical Mother's Day sermon, you know, three or four points on how to be a good mom or, or something along those lines. And, uh, and sometimes it was almost like the people who were sitting there who like, it was a, not a good thing, <laughs> what, uh, were just kind of just overlooked or forgotten. So in your celebration today, at least remember, maybe take a moment to pray for those who this day may have m- a lot of, baggage, a lot of pain, a lot of hurt connected to it, because sometimes we forget that there are those around us who may not, did not have the perfect little, you know, you know, everything was wonderful and great, you know, and and awesome. So um, the day has never really been a good day for me in my entire life. So I try to always be reminded of that when, when on these days that occur. So I don't, I don't, forego the typical sermon because of that. I forego the typical sermon because it just seems like, just seems like we just look for something to, to grab onto instead of just doing what we need to do, which is teach God's word. Now, if we're in a text that deals with something related to being a mom, then obviously we would do what? We'll teach it and we'll study it. So, but in this particular case, we are in the book of Romans, so that's where we should go. But since I'm not ready, we're going to go back to what we've been working on for the Bible Study Exercise podcast, which is Matthew chapter 24. So that's where we're going to spend the next little while getting really confused. Okay, all right. Matthew chapter 24, all right. I don't know, um, doing this on a Sunday morning, has its challenges because I know there's probably plenty sitting in the, in the sanctuary who have not participated or been a part of the Bible study exercise podcast uh, series, but we've now been, uh, basically the Bible study exercise uh, podcast, for those who don't know, we we typically dedicate one passage of scripture and one week looking at that passage of scripture. I give homework, there's curriculum and people participate from all around the world. And we really dig into the text. Um, this particular time, we decided to dedicate eight weeks to Matthew 24. Eight weeks to Matthew 24. And the reason I decided to dedicate eight weeks to Matthew 24 is a couple. Number one, number one the curriculum itself spends multiple weeks on it. Number two is because Matthew 24 is one of those passages that drive me absolutely insane because people constantly rip verses out of context and use it, I mean... The wind blows too strong and they'll grab something from Matthew 24 saying Jesus is about to return. And you're like, what in the world are people doing here? So we've been working on it and working on it and working on it and working on it. So let's first establish the basic context. I I do this pretty much in every podcast dealing with this. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24, start in verse 1. Jesus went out and departed from everyone. Say the next two words. The temple. The temple that was standing when? 
Well, Jesus is speaking this somewhere close to 33 AD. Yes? Okay. That's the temple that's being referred to. Yes? The temple that was standing when Jesus was walking on this earth. Does that make sense? All right. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. He walks out. The disciples run up and say, look, look at all of this. Look at this place. Right? What are they pointing to? The temple standing when? Somewhere close to 33 AD. Everybody got that? And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now that's a pretty shocking comment, right? You're like, hey, Jesus, look at these awesome buildings. And Jesus is like, they're all going to be destroyed. And they're like, Wait, what? what? Okay, I just, what's happening here? There's going to be a little bit of concern, yes? Like, what would be your very next words? When? How am I going to know we're getting close to it? And why would you want to know when you're getting close to it? Thank you, someone just said it, because you don't want to be there, right? You don't want to be there. Right? You don't want to be there. So they ask some questions. Now, a lot of people make a big deal out of their questions. Don't, listen, you never base your hermeneutic, your hermeneutic on the questions of confused people. I, I don't know why people like, hey, but the disciples ask this. They don't know what's going on, right? The disciples have been confused by everything, right? You're going to die? No, you're not. Like, you're leaving? Wait, where, where are you going? They're, they're constantly confused. But you can understand some of their questions, so Jesus, he, in fact, it almost, what's funny is he says this and it's almost like he walks off and they're standing there like. And then next thing you know, he's where? Next verse. He's, he sat upon the Mount of Olives, right? So he just walks off and they've just been standing there. They've probably been talking all day going, what, what did you, like, are you, did you hear that right? Like, no, no, what, what? They're trying to figure it out. He's on the Mount of Olives. The disciples come to him privately saying, tell us, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? A lot of people interpret their question in a really weird way. It's like, well, according to our profound knowledge on biblical eschatology, we are going to ask you about three specific events. That's a completely wrong reading of it. They're just like, what? They are connecting that, okay, when is all of this going to happen? What, like, they are just trying to figure it all out. Their question clearly is not to be interpreted as they understand that this breaks down into three different you know, happenings. They're just thinking that all of this is going to coincide with what? With the event. That the destruction of the temple would be the end of the world and everything else, right? They're, they are confused. So then what happens in verse 4? My favorite verse of the entire chapter. Jesus answered. The answer deals with what? When is the temple going to be destroyed? Now, I know that sadly you don't learn this in most churches for some weird reason. I've always said what blows my mind. I learned about this outside of church first. I should have learned about it inside church because I heard countless sermons on Matthew 24. But guess what? We know exactly when the temple was destroyed. 70 AD. Titus, it's destroyed. We know exactly when it occurs. If you, if you go to any school who teaches world history, I know if it's you're in Texas, all you learn is Texas history. So you, you miss this event. But if you study world history, you learn about the destruction of the temple. It's an absolute historical fact. Right? You can go to Jerusalem today. There is no temple. Because it was destroyed. So we know exactly when it was destroyed. So what's awesome is Jesus begins his Answer. His answer is, when is this going to happen? And he starts with, my favorite thing about this is what? Take heed. Don't be deceived. I find it so much, it's so ironic (laughs) that he says, don't be deceived. And ever since he's uttered those words, people have been deceived and manipulated over and over and over with the very answer he gives, which is kind of messed up. 
Here's the eternal son of God saying, don't be deceived. And then preachers have come along and ripped these verses so far out of context to make them about everything other than what? 70 AD. Or they give like a, just a little passing. Well, some say this refers to, to 70 AD. It may refer to that, but, 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 but. We're going to look to when Jesus is going to come back. Which completely removes it from what? Everything. So we've been working on this, yes? And what did we dogmatically determine? Verse 4 to 15, at a minimum, we can dogmatically say, have all been fulfilled between 33 AD and 70 AD. Let's go through this quickly. Well, I'm just going to 15 now, all right? Let's go through this. Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. We read from historical records, Josephus and others, that there were all kinds of false Christ and false Messiah showing up between 33 AD all the way up to 70 AD. All right? In fact, some of the problem is there was false prophets and false Christ telling them to go where? To the temple, when all of the signs should have been telling them to leave the temple, and then, uh, according to Josephus, almost a million people are slaughtered. Now, some people don't agree with Josephus' numbers, but a lot of people die as a result of all of this. So there were false prophets. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. You shall hear wars, rumors of war. Now, in, uh, in many churches, as soon as a war breaks out, the situation in Russia and Ukraine, wars and rumors of war, Jesus is going to come back tomorrow. Okay, uh, First of all, if this is predicting Jesus' second coming, does everyone understand how meaningless this would be? You know how many wars there have been since 33 AD? Okay, thousands of wars. So at this point, it would be a symbol, a, a, a sign that lost all meaning. All right. So wars and rumors of war. All right. Uh, See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in diverse places. People are always quoting this on social media. Anytime an earthquake happens, anytime a famine happens. You know how many earthquakes have happened since 33 AD? I think we had had the one, what was it, 100,000 significant earthquakes since like 1980. It's some crazy number. The numbers are absolutely insane. So, But there were significant earthquakes leading up to when? 70 AD, all right? All of of these signs would have been major significant to them. All of these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up, afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. There was persecution happening very, I mean, just read the book of Acts. Persecution was happening very quickly. We've looked at all of this. Uh, Many shall be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. Many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive, deceive many. Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end shall be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. Remember, that's the verse that we immediately thought, well, maybe that doesn't fit 70 AD. But then we went to the writings of Paul where Paul says what? The gospel had gone to all the world. In fact, he goes so far to say to every creature. He says this in the book of Colossians. And we see it at the end of Romans as well. All right. So we looked at that. That brings us to verse 15. Oh, man, everybody loves these verses, right? Protestant, the the evangelical church loves verse 15. Because verse 15 talks about that event called the abominations of desolation. All right. Now, we talked long and hard about this one. All right. We're just going to go quickly. I, I'm just doing a review because it's Sunday morning, so a lot of people may not have heard everything. So for those listening online, like, well, you've already covered this a million times. I know this. Just stay with me. All right. Okay. Abomination of desolation. Let's just make sure everyone's thinking caps on. In most churches, if you go in today, you talk about the abomination of desolation, they will say, not all, but many, that this is a reference to what? That in the future, future from us, the temple will be rebuilt. The Antichrist will walk into the temple and declare himself to be God. And that will be the abomination of desolation. All right. Everyone points to the future. Now, we already know we can go to the past, right? 
around 167 BC, when Antiochus IV Epiphanes goes, desecrates the temple by slaughtering a pig on the altar and basically doing that. But that can't be what's being referred to here. Why can this not be what Jesus is referring to? Because 167 is way before this happens. Way before Jesus utters these words. So Jesus is pointing something future. Okay, so could it be that he's referring to something that hasn't happened yet? Well, if he is, that wouldn't be of much help to the people that he's warning them about the destruction of the temple, would it? So what we looked at all the historical records. We read from Josephus. We read from a number of things. What did we discover? We believe this occurred when? 70 AD, when Rome came in and they desecrated the Temple Mount by doing what? Well, they destroyed it. (laughs) Okay, I don't know if you realize that. That kind of desecrates it. They carried off the treasures from within. That's pretty corrupting. And by destroying it, what were they declaring? We're greater than your God. Your God can't even stop us. And what else did they bring up onto the Temple Mount? Their flag, their symbols, the the eagles, that was basically a symbol of pagan worship. They desecrated the Temple Mount. So we believe that's when verse 15 occurred. If you're going to try to put it to the future, what does everyone always run to to try to go to to find a future interpretation? They run to 2 Thessalonians. What's the problem with that? 2 Thessalonians was written when? Way before 70 A.D. Almost 20 years before 70 A.D. Or at best, 15 years. Even if you want to say 10 years, it's still before. So 2 Thessalonians could be understood as pointing to 70 A.D. as well. We just have to look at this. So, we talked about all of that. All right? Now, verse 16, just so that we know, when you see the abomination of desolation, what should occur? Then let them which be in Judea... Flee into the mountains. As soon as they see this, what do they need to do? Leave. Get out. And what was sad is they didn't. Because they had false prophets telling them to go where? To the temple. Which got them slaughtered. Which is just so messed up. Why you don't listen to false teachers. They should have listened to what Jesus said. This should have been a sign for them to get as far away from Jerusalem as humanly possible. But many of them did not. They listened. And, and Josephus talks about how many, the, how, uh, I think uh, I had everyone read the, the section from Josephus. He talks about how tired they got in killing people. They literally got tired killing people. That's how bad it was. It was horrible. Horrible s- uh, situation that occurred in history. All right. So let them which be on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. All right? They, uh, they built these like housetops uh, all throughout Jerusalem. It used to be joked about that you could run across Jerusalem just going from housetop to housetop to housetop to housetop. You didn't even have to go back down. And the, con- and the concept here, Jesus is kind of borrowing from that concept because he tells you to do what? Don't come back down. Don't even get anything out of the house. Just go. Like, in other words, if you're on a housetop and you can get to the other housetop and get to another, you just start running and get as far away as you can because, well, judgment and destruction is coming. What happens in verse 18? Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. If you're out in the field working, you don't go, well, I got to go get my nice clothes. You don't have time to worry about what clothes you have on. Go. Right? What happens next? Woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. Hey, it's, if you have a child, this is going to be horrible. Now, this really fits that time period, right? It really fits that time period. Because now you would just put them in the back seat in the car seat, hand them a bottle and just take off. It'd still be difficult. Nothing like this. Right? You got to carry them. Are you going to carry, like, what do you, I mean, trying to carry food? I mean, you don't have a trunk in your car. This, this really fits the time period in which it's referring to. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither be on the Sabbath day. Now, the fact that he mentions the Sabbath day clearly connects this to when? 
70 AD. Who's this a reference to? Jews. This is about, this is the Jewish era. This all fits the Jewish era perfectly. Perfectly. All right. Next. For then, now this is the verse where everything begins to have a problem. Up to verse 20, there's too much historical evidence. We can say up to verse 20, everything was fulfilled in 70 AD. But this is where the problems began. Oh, man. This is where I get a significant headache. All right, why is verse 21 so difficult? Yes. Now, if you listen to the Bible study exercise last night, you know I gave an answer to this. I think it's a very important answer. I'm going to mention it because we want to get a little further down. But here we go. All right, you ready? Because the preterist ignore this verse. The preterist that I have here, all right, preterism, which is basically says everything was fulfilled in 70 AD. They, for some weird reason, just skip this verse so fast that it, like they don't even act like it exists, which I hate that. But everyone does this, right? No matter what position you take on almost any theological system, I can't stand when the way you maintain your theological system is to ignore verses that disagree with your theological system. We don't care about the system. We care about the text, Right? So we've got to look at this text, and it's problematic. Why is it problematic? Everybody read it. Everybody ready? First two words. For then. Okay, so the abomination of desolation has occurred. People are running, right? For then shall what? Shall great tribulation. Some translations refer to it as great distress. So for then shall great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. That's, a very, that's problematic and reducing that to just 70 AD. Why is it problematic to reducing it to 70 AD? Well, I can think of some really bad things that happened prior to 70 AD. Can't you? I don't know. Flooding the entire world seems pretty bad. The temple had been destroyed previously. That's that's a hard time. And it's so bad that it's not going to be anything ever like it after. Now, look, I've read Josephus' description of the destruction of the temple. It's horrible, right? I, I will tell you it's a horrible, horrible event. But I don't know. World War I and World War II is pretty bad. Dropping an atomic weapon on a civilian, a city full of civilians is a pretty horrible thing. Yes? Okay? Nazi concentration camps where six million Jews are, ex- are killed is pretty bad. Agreed? I can go on and on and on. There's been, so that just, that doesn't really work, does it? Now, the problem is, how do we jump, how do we go from 70 AD to jump to some future? It, it becomes very difficult, does it not? Would everyone agree? Verse 22, and except those days should be shortened, there shall no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. All right. I'm going to provide a possible answer here that I don't think is perfect, but I think it at least is worth considering. All right. Everybody ready? All right. I'm going to see if I can find where this is described. Okay. I'm just going to read. This is from the curriculum that's available to everybody if anybody wants it. Okay. Um, Here it is. While many scholars see the verses predicting this as a reference to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, verse 21 points to events beyond that. Now they make a dogmatic assertion. Okay. Surely the great tribulation And verse 21 cannot be applied only to the destruction of Jerusalem. I agree that the preterist doesn't even seem to provide me an answer. I need an answer if I'm going to make that work 70 AD, and it just doesn't work. I don't care how, you can retranslate that verse a hundred different ways. It just, it doesn't work. So this is what they have to say. We know from history that we've undergone more horrific events since then. It is probably best, therefore... 
to understand this period of great distress or the great tribulation as it is more commonly known, are you ready? As the entire period beginning with the devastation of 70 AD and continuing all the way until the return of Christ. That would involve every horrible thing. Yes? That the Great Tribulation marks a period of time that includes everything from 70 AD all the way till Christ returns, which would include what things? Well, every, well, not just things in our past, but any horrible things in the future, like if we take any kind of a literal interpretation to the book of Revelation, those horrible things occur before when? The coming of Christ. So that would include those things that we sometimes limit. Sometimes we call it the tribulation and the great tribulation, depending on your system of eschatology, right? It would include that period. They just expand it that the great tribulation started in 70 AD and includes all the horrible things that happens all the way till Christ returns. That's, that's a workable answer because the, other, the only other option is you've got to reduce it to 70 AD. Can everyone agree that doesn't work? To try it, just say immediately jumps to the future. That's really bizarre in how to make that work, right? He just immediately just jumps to the future. Well, wait, how did we get there? But if you say it started there and it goes all the way to Christ's return, that includes everything. That's a possible solution. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's possible. All right? They go on to say this. All right, everybody ready? This unequaled future will be trouble and tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. No period of history fits the description of the events that will occur during this time. While some view Jesus' words as an Old Testament Hebrew idiom, a phrase that refers to something that is extremely unusual, Others see references to the cataclysmic tribulation period throughout the book of Revelation, specifically Revelation chapter 6 through 11. Christ was describing a time when evil will reign with a great maliciousness. As the return of Christ draws near, all bonds of evil will be broken, restraints will be put aside, lawlessness will flood the earth, and God will move in judgment while terrible catastrophe will sweep the earth. The things will be so dark that people will seek deliverance through death, Revelation chapter 9. Hardships often lead people to look to God, but this will not be the case during the time of great tribulation. And as the rest of men who were not killed by these plagues, and then they go into Revelation 20, talking about these people crying out basically to die. As difficult as these portions of scripture are to read, we must be deeply grateful for the mercy of God. Jesus said God is going to cut short the days of tribulation. The phrase cut short carries the idea of stopping something instantaneously. Christ seemed to mean that in his mercy, he will not allow the tribulation to continue forever. God has predetermined that those days will fall short of full destruction. The suffering will be so great that if the Lord let the sufferings continue, no one would survive. And we see that right here in Matthew 24, do we not? So let's go back and read that. Verse 21. For then shall the great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world, to this time, no, nor shall ever be. And except those days shall be shortened, there shall no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Now stop right there. This would seem to imply, if we go with this concept, that starting in 70 AD was the beginning of a time period called the Great Tribulation that involves what? Everything that will occur from there all the way till Christ returns. Now, it feels like for me it's been a long time. Yes? Okay. Way too long. But this is implying that it may be long in our minds, but God has predetermined that there's going to come a time where it stops. And if he did not stop it, what would happen? Everyone would be destroyed. And if you read Revelation, you would think, well, everyone's about to be destroyed. Yes, until Christ ultimately comes back. And even when he comes back, there's death and destruction. Yes? 
So that would possibly work. It makes more sense than the 70 AD concept for that verse. And jumping to the future doesn't seem to fit. So it, it, it seems to work. What's the next verse? Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. Now, I find it interesting in verse 23 that we're back to the initial warning. How many times has he warned you not to follow false Christ? Now, think of it this way. This seems to be involved during that tribulation period that goes from 70 AD and before. The other warnings seem to be leading up to 70 AD. So prior to 70 AD, what did you need to be on the lookout for? False Christ. After 70 AD, what did you need to be on the lookout for? False Christ. What do you need to be on the lookout for today? False teachers, false Christ. So that's been true in every period of time. I just find it interesting that after that, we have the warning again. Verse 24, for there shall arise false Christ and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Now, what's interesting about verse 24? Now, these false teachers are going to be able to do what, it appears? Great miracles. Great signs and wonders. Now, that fits in perfectly with what? Cross-reference. Book of Revelation. What's going to happen in the book of Revelation? They're going to deceive many through miracles, even fire coming down from heaven. Miracles will be used to deceive people moving for, as we go into the future, false prophets will arise who will be able to do great miracles and wonders and signs. You gotta, I cannot stress this enough. This is so very, very, very important. This is a basic principle here because I think now we're starting to look more towards the future here than the past, but it's been true in every period of time. False teachers, beware of false teachers. This is true in every period of history. But I cannot stress this enough. If someone, if, if, if all of a sudden CNN, Fox, every news channel in the world descended upon Abilene, and there's some person at Taylor County Coliseum, and he's healing people. He's raising people from the dead, people who are missing arms, arms are returning. I mean, this is not any kind of fake that people are actually being healed. They're being raised from the dead. Your best friend who died, you, you bring them to their, their grave, they raise them from the dead. Like miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle is happening. That does not prove they are from God. You would be tempted to believe that it was, would you not? Remember, I lost my mom as a teenager. If they went to Buffalo Gap Cemetery and raised her from the dead, it would be hard for me not to want to follow said person. Okay? Right? Do I? Okay. I, I, I probably wouldn't. Okay. okay. I hope I wouldn't. But the point is, you would be tempted, yes? Right? We would all be tempted. What You do not determine, this is so important, the truthfulness of a theology simply based off the miracles that they are seemingly able to perform. The, the truthfulness of theology or a teacher is not the miracles they perform, but it's, it's truthfulness to God's word. That's the standard. And nothing will deceive people more than signs and wonders and miracles. Signs, wonders, and miracles always draw a crowd. Why? Because signs, miracles, and wonders satisfy what I want. And the very basic element of Christianity is not about what I want. Remember? Deny self, die to self, and you don't follow self. That's, that's Christianity right there. That's why, that's why, look, if you're not saved, that's why you would not like Christianity. 
If, you, if you're not saved, you'll be like, wait a minute, you want me to join a religion that says I have to deny myself and die to self and not follow self? Have you not met me? I'm the best person in the world. I want everything. I want it to be happy. I want what I want. Right? I mean, that's how we feel. That's in our, our very nature. I want what I want. And we struggle with that even after being saved. Do we not? So, I, I, so clearly these things are going to draw us away. We want what we want, man. The, sometimes the last thing we think is spiritual implications of our decisions. Well, we, we just like, we're going to do this, and we don't even think about what it can mean spiritually. False teachers always appeal to what? The flesh. But just remember, you judge not based off miracles, but based off truthfulness to God's word. So I just find it interesting that it's right back to warning of the same thing. So if we, now just make sure we understand this. So verse 4 to 20 clearly all happened before 70 AD. There's just no way, there's too much historical documentation. Verse 21 clearly has reference to 70 AD, but we think this period of great tribulation starts in 70 AD and will go all the way to when Jesus returns. And from that point on, what do we need to be on the lookout for? False teachers who will be able to do what? Signs and wonders. I cannot stress that. They will be able to do miracles. The time is coming where there will be false prophets who are doing great signs and wonders. And it seems to imply that the signs and wonders will be real. Not fraudulent. And I'm telling you, that's, that's something to be on the lookout for. All right? Now, verse 25. Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chamber, believe it not. What's the emphasis here? Don't be deceived. Isn't it amazing how like he's really, after all of this, he's right back to saying, don't be deceived. Because someone's going to come to you and say what? Now, I know young people don't remember this, but for those who are older in the 1990s, I remember watching it all take place in a bowling alley in Bellevue, Nebraska, watching the TV going, what is happening in Texas? What? It, these people have lost their minds. Because there was some guy by the name of David Koresh in Wacko Waco claiming to be Jesus. And I was sitting there going, "What? wait, it's your turn. Okay, all right, I got a bowl. What is going on? And then they were calling students from Dallas Theological Seminary to try to come out there and talk to David Koresh going, you're not Jesus, okay? You're not the lamb who can open up the seven, the seals of the book. Well, you're, you're, you're out of your mind, right? And then we know tragically how that ended, yes? The government came in and next thing you know, Death. Death. I mean, I remember watching the buildings burn going, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. It's horrible. It's horrible. I mean, if you don't know the history of it, there's documentaries on it. Just go watch it. It's horrible. Now, that was back in the 1990s. Jesus seems to be warning not only them, because this goes from 70 AD. In every era, there's going to be these situations where someone's like... Jesus is over there. There's, I think there's a person right now, I'd have to look it up, I can't remember which country, where he claims to be Jesus right now, and he has a large following. I don't know how many people listen to him on the internet, and he claims to be Jesus. So th- there's people even right now claiming to be Jesus. All right? So this stuff happens all the time. Does that make sense? All right? So, so in other words, verse 26, Wherefore, if they say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Uh, he's in the secret chamber, believe it not. Now, this would have been very important for the people in 70 AD, right? 70 AD happens, what are they supposed to do? Run for their lives, and they're hiding in the mountains, they're hiding anywhere. And what just happened to Judaism? Remember, this is how the only way to interpret Hebrews is, again, in light of 70 AD. Their entire religious system is gone. No sacrifice. No priest, no temple, everything's gone. So it would, be, it would be very easy to possibly deceive these people going, oh, Jesus, he's, he's over there. Jesus is over there. And they could be very vulnerable to it. He said, like, don't do what? Don't believe it. Don't go. Now, here comes verse 27. 
For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, let me stop right here. Okay, everyone just, we're almost out of time. We're not, we didn't get near as far as we wanted to, but that's okay. All right, I want everyone to look at 27 carefully. Now, according to the preterist, which I have right here, this is referencing 70 AD. And I have massive problems with this. Okay, so looking at verse 27, in light of the verses that precede it, what are the verses preceding it immediately? What are they warning them about? False Christ and not being what? Deceived that Jesus is there. So this seems to be giving them the way they're going to know that Jesus is there. The way the preterist seems to be reading this is that these warnings are going back before the abomination of desolation. Saying, hey, don't be looking for Jesus. You're going to know when he shows up. Like, in other words, the text is kind of going in like a chronological order, and then it goes, it, it stops, and it, 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 it jumps, and then it grabs these warnings and goes backwards, and I have a hard time following that train of thought. Now, I feel like the reason they want to do this is they've got to make everything happen in 70 AD. Now, look, if they're right, I'm willing to change my mind. You know how I am. I've got no problem. I don't care about, I have no problem preaching a sermon in the middle of the sermon saying, you know what, I think I'm wrong. I got, I've done it before, right? I've got no problem because it's not about ego, right? It's not about ego. It's about trying to figure out the truth. But look at that verse. Put your thinking caps on. Oh, I wanted to read to you the preterist view. I wanted you to read the preterist view, but okay, we're not going to have time. All right, here we go. This verse seems to be telling them what specifically? I want you to just read it as literal and as, as practical as you can. What does he seem to be telling them? Okay. The coming of the Son of Man. He tries to let them know that when he comes, it seems to infer that there's going to be what? No doubt about it. Versus someone going, hey, 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 Brenda, Brenda, Brenda. Jesus is in Tuscola. Well, first of all, that, I have a hard time believing that. Okay, but, right, he's in Tuscola. Correct? Now, or go back to 70 AD. Hey, he's, he's, he's back. He's back in Jerusalem. Or he's in that cave over there. This seemed to be saying, no, 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 that, don't fall for that. Because when he comes back, there's going to be literally no confusion. Now, how does the preterist understand this? This is not literal lightning. This is figurative, meaning you're going to know when Jesus comes back because you're going to see the temple in ruins and it's going to be completely destroyed. They're just using exaggerated language to say the way you know Jesus comes back is when the temple is destroyed. That's the return of Christ. In an extreme preterist view, Jesus came back in 70 AD. I have a problem with that because this, didn't he already establish the Abomination of desolation? And didn't he already tell them to run? Well, if, if the abomination of desolation is the destruction of the temple, then why would you come back and go, hey, you're going to know when Jesus comes back, when he destroys the temple, when he's already talked about that with the abomination of desolation. It seems to be out of order. The abomination of desolation sets up the great tribulation period, which goes from 70 AD all the way to the end. And from that point on, what do we need to be on the lookout for? Anyone saying, Jesus is here. Jesus is like, you'll know when I'm here. There won't be any doubt. How far does he go on to try to prove this point? Now, this is where, now verse 28 is the preterist, the, the, the verse 28 is where the preterist is like, no, we win. Because what does the verse 28 say? For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Now, what is significant about the eagles? Oh, very good. That's the Roman symbol. Okay. okay. 
Well, which would be a whole lot easier to get around, okay? But let's go with eagles. This would be like, well, wait a minute. What he is saying, see, you're going to know when I've come back, when you see all the carcasses. Remember, supposedly a million people were slaughtered in the destruction of the temple. And And who would be standing there? The Romans with what? Their eagle symbol. Oh, that goes, that goes backwards. The preterist is going to be like, oh, we win. Oh, okay. So the previous verse seems to go against the preterist idea. This verse seems to go with the preterist idea. Don't you love biblical hermeneutics? Oh, this become a headache. Okay, how about the next verse? What does the next verse do? Now, immediately after the tribulation... Okay. Of those days shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Now, okay. Oh boy, we got to put. We're going to out of time. All right. What's a key phrase in this verse? Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, if we say the tribulation goes from, the great tribulation goes from 70 AD till the return of Christ, or leading up to the return of Christ, well then, does the tribulation end, and then what happens after the, immediately after the tribulation? According to that verse. Sun is darkened. Moon. Stars fall from heaven. Powers of the heaven shall be shaken. What happens next? Next verse. Then the son of... Okay, now, that seems to be describing things very much like in Revelation, right? So is there some way to go, okay, after the tribulation, going from 70 AD until Christ returns, then after that period, all of these things happen and Jesus comes back. Now, what is the preterist going to do here, if you don't know? They're going to say all of that symbol, they're going to call all that symbolism, the moon, the sun, that that simply is descriptive words to describe the destruction of the temple. So Christ comes back with the destruction of the temple. I have a hard time with that. That I'm, I, uh, I love the, the eagle and the carcass fitting with the temple. Here I have major problems. So, we'll end with this because we're out of time. And I know we're kind of just like, but, 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 I know. Maybe tonight we'll just finish this tonight. We'll finish this tonight. All right, here we go. We'll have to still read the preterist. So, let's go, let's do this really quick, okay? If you're, if you're writing on paper and you want to just try to outline this. Verse 4 to 20, clearly 70 AD, there's no debate. 21... I think makes sense to refer to 70 AD and possibly establishing a time that goes all the way to the second coming of Christ. I think it makes sense, right? Verse 22, 23, 24, right? 25 and 26, all of that would clearly be a warning that we think of the Antichrist, the false prophet. This would fit every period of time, yes? All right. Verse 27. Mm. I, I know the preterist wants to make that 70 AD, but it just doesn't make any sense to me. The strength of making it 70 AD is because it's connected with verse 28, which really fits the language of 70 AD. But the problem with that well, I guess to put it this way, there would be no question that we'll put, a, we'll put a question mark around 27 and 28, okay? 29, if, if you say that immediately after the tribulation of those days, this is how you would have to read that. Immediately after the destruction of the temple. That what, what, what's going to happen? Then you're going to have all of these this symbolism doesn't seem to make any sense, does it? If I can somehow go, well, you're going to have the tribulation period, which will then lead up to Jesus' return, then I can make this future, I can make it go from 70 AD all the way till there. We'll have to work on that one. Some of it were clear 
it starts getting a little iffy here. Do we agree? Agreed? Yes? No? I, I know. How many people here have ever read a preterist interpretation? Okay, come on. People have gone to this church. I've sit here from this pulpit and preached an entire preterist interpretation. You've at least heard me preach it, okay? All right, so you've heard me preach it, okay? Uh, hopefully, if you were here or listen online, okay? So, so the, the, uh, let's make this very clear. This is always a danger. If you become so familiar with one position, it's very difficult to ever see the text in any other way other than the position you were taught. If the original position you were taught was wrong, that makes it almost impossible to ever change your position. Do you see the danger? Now, I'm not saying the preterists are right because I, I'm having major problems making this work. Okay, but I'm always willing to hear out any position to see if we need to change anything. But I think the good, what's the strength of preterism? The strength of preterism is it makes us realize that we have to look at possible already fulfillments in the past whenever we're dealing with any verse that's about biblical prophecy. That's a strength of it. Because too many times Christians ignore past fulfillment and look for future, which in many cases is very misleading. All right? So they do a good job making sure that we look at Matthew 24 in the context of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That's great. The weakness is they will make every verse fit that narrative even when it appears not to fit that narrative, that's a weakness. But guess what? Those who look to every verse as being a future will do everything to make those verses fit their narrative. Every side has that weakness. Those verses right there get really iffy, do they not? And we're going to work, we'll, we'll clean it all up tonight. We'll, because now you've gotten all the review. We've reviewed everything, now we're all on the same page. So we'll just come right in tonight and just boom, hit right there and finish it. I know you're like, but you're leaving me without answers. No, I'm leaving you with the ability to struggle with it like anybody who's ever studied this has struggled. If you've never struggled with it, you've never actually read it because there's a lot to struggle with. Yes? Some of it clearly 70 AD. Some of it I'm not so sure. Okay, but what happened in 70 AD was horrible, but we'll stop right there. All right, Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. A very difficult passage of scripture. Lord, give us the desire to try to figure it out. And make us continue to just be dedicated to the study of your word, not to prove a side, but to know what you say and understand the importance of it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said.